Chapter Fourteen of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Night brought a cessation of hostilities to the weary troops, but to neither side a decided victory or defeat. Both armies bivouacked on the bloody field within a few rods of each other. There they lay waiting for the morning light to decide the contest. The excitement and din of battle had ceased. Those brief hours of darkness proved a sweet respite from the fierce struggle of the day, and in the holy calm of that midnight hour, when silence brooded over the blood-washed plain, many brave soldiers lay down on that gory field, the weary to sleep and the wounded to die. Sunday, the first of June, dawned beautifully, a day of hallowed rest and promise to the millions who rose to their devotions, ere the bell had called them to the house of prayer, but not of rest to the weary, broken armies the drumbeat called from their wet and muddy beds to renew the contest. At a quarter past seven o'clock the battle again commenced, and raged fiercely until about noon. Both armies fought with determination and heroic bravery until the rebels were compelled to yield, and victory once more perched upon the banners of the national troops. I came on the field about ten o'clock, and remained until the close of the battle, but could do little more than look upon the terrible scene. General McClellan was on the field when I arrived. I saw him ride along the entire battle front, and if I had not seen him I could not have long remained in ignorance of his presence, for the cheers from all parts of the Federal lines told as plainly as words could express that their beloved commander was with them, amid that desperate struggle for victory. It was a terrible slaughter. More than fifteen thousand lay upon the field. It was enough to make angels weep to look down upon that field of carnage. The dead and wounded of the enemy fell into the hands of the Unionists, which added fearfully to the labors of that exhausted, battle-worn army. On the evening of the 3rd of June, General McClellan issued the following address to his troops, which was read on dress parade, and was received with tremendous cheering. Quote, Soldiers of the Army of the Potomac, I have fulfilled at least a part of my promise to you. You are now face to face with the rebels, who are held at bay in front of their capital. The final and decisive battle is at hand. Unless you belie your past history, the result cannot be for a moment doubtful. If the troops who labored so faithfully at Yorktown, and fought so bravely and won the hard fights at Williamsburg, West Point, Hanover Courthouse, and Fair Oaks, now prove themselves worthy of their antecedents, the victory is surely ours. The events of every day prove your superiority. Wherever you have met the enemy, you have beaten him. Wherever you have used the bayonet, he has given way in panic and disorder. I ask you now one last crowning effort. The enemy has staked his all on the issue of the coming battle. Let us meet him, crush him here in the very center of the rebellion. Soldiers, I will be with you in this battle, and share its dangers with you. Our confidence in each other is now founded upon the past. Let us strike the blow which is to restore peace and union to this distracted land. Upon your valor, discipline, and mutual confidence, the result depends. Every battle fought on the peninsula fearfully reduced the strength of the Army of the Potomac, and proved to a demonstration that the enemy far outnumbered the Union forces. 
still there were no reinforcements notwithstanding mcclellan's daily urgent dispatches to the president and secretary of war and the great impending battle in front of the rebel capital so near at hand the next day mcclellan sent another dispatch as follows quote, please inform me at once what reinforcements if any i can count upon having at fortress monroe or white house within the next three days and when each regiment may be expected to arrive it is of the utmost importance that i should know this immediately the losses in the battle of the thirty-first and first will amount to seven thousand regard this as confidential for the present after the losses in our last battle i trust that i shall no longer be regarded as an alarmist i believe we have at least one more desperate battle to fight the day after the battle of fair oaks a splendid sword was presented to me it had been struck from the hand of a rebel colonel while in the act of raising it to strike one of our officers after he had fallen from his horse oh how proud i felt of that beautiful silver-mounted trophy from the bloody field of fair oaks which had so recently been wielded by a powerful arm but powerless now for he lay in the agonies of death while his splendid sword had passed into my feeble hands i presume if he had known this it would have added another pang to his already agonized spirit the sword was presented by general k to whom i gave my rebel pony with the comforting assurance that he was only intended for ornament and not for use for generals were too scarce on the peninsula to risk their precious lives by coming in contact with him the general was delighted with him and without paying the slightest attention to my suggestion deliberately walked up to the pony and commenced patting him and handling his limbs as if he were the most quiet creature in the world while reb stood eyeing his new master with apparent satisfaction and seemed to rejoice that he had passed from my insignificant hands and was henceforth to be honored bearer of shoulder straps after thoroughly examining him he said he is certainly a splendid horse and worth three hundred dollars of any man's money all he requires is kind treatment and he will be as gentle as any one could desire but reb very soon gave him to understand decidedly that he was overrating his good qualities for no sooner had the general turned his back toward him than he struck him between the shoulders with both hind feet sending him his full length upon the ground and as soon as he attempted to rise he repeated the same performance until he had knocked him down four or five times in succession by that time the general was pretty thoroughly convinced that reb's social qualities were somewhat deficient his bump of combativeness largely developed and his gymnastics quite impressive on the evening of the same day in which the victory was won i visited what was then and is still called the hospital tree near fair oaks it was an immense tree under whose shady extended branches the wounded were carried and laid down to await the stimulant the opiate or the amputating knife as the case might require the ground around that tree for several acres in extent was literally drenched with human blood and the men were laid so close together that there was no such thing as passing between them but each one was removed in their turn as the surgeons could attend to them i witnessed there some of the most heart-rending sights it is possible for the human mind to conceive read what a massachusetts chaplain writes concerning it Quote, there is a large tree near the battleground of fair oaks 
the top of which was used as an observatory during the fight, which stands as a memento of untold, and perhaps never to be told, suffering and sorrow. Many of the wounded and dying were laid beneath its branches after the battle, in order to receive surgical help, or to breathe their last more quietly. What heart-rending scenes did I witness in that place, so full of saddened memories to me and to others! Brave, uncomplaining men were brought thither out of the woodland, the crimson tide of whose life was ebbing away in the arms of those who carried them. Almost all who died met death like heroes, with scarcely a groan. Those wounded, but not mortally, how nobly they bore the necessary probings and needed amputations! Two instances of this heroic fortitude deserve to be specially mentioned. One of them is that of William C. Bentley, of the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment, both of whose legs were broken by a bombshell, whose wrist and breast were mangled, and who yet was as calm as if he suffered no pain. He refused any opiate or stimulant that might dim his consciousness. He asked only that we should pray for him, that he might be patient and submissive, and dictated a letter to be sent to his mother. Then, and not till then, opiates were given him, and he fell gently asleep, and for the last time. The other case was that of Francis Sweetser, of Company E, of the 16th Massachusetts Regiment, who witnessed in death, as he had uniformly done in life, a good confession of Christ. Thank God, he said, that I am permitted to die for my country. Thank God more yet that I am prepared to die. And then after a moment's thought, he modestly added, at least I hope I am. When he died, he was in the act of prayer, and in that position his limbs grew rigid, and so remained after the spirit had left his body. Oh, who that has witnessed such triumphant deaths on the battlefield will presume to doubt that the spirit of that patriot, who falls amid the terrible clash of arms and the fierce surge of battle, is prepared to go from that scene of blood and strife, and to enter into that rest that God has prepared for them that love him. Yes, the noble men who have gone from under the sheltering wings of the different evangelical churches throughout the land, have gone in the strength of God, and with the full assurance that if they should fall fighting for the God-given rights of humanity, there, amid the shock of battle, the still, small voice of Jesus would be heard speaking peace to the departing soul, and that their triumphant spirits would go home rejoicing to be forever with the Lord. When I see a man first lay himself upon the altar of God, and then upon the altar of his country, I have no fear for that man's happiness in time or in eternity. Good Bishop Simpson, of the Methodist Episcopal Church, soon after the outbreak of the Great Rebellion, delivered a sermon on the national crisis at Chicago. It is represented as one of the ablest efforts of this clergyman, so distinguished for his power in the pulpit. As it was one of the anniversaries of the denomination, thousands were present to hear the discourse. Suddenly, at one point in the sermon, and as the fitting close of a most impassioned paragraph, he gave utterance to the following noble sentiment, quote, We will take our glorious flag, the flag of our country, and nail it just below the cross. That is high enough. There let it wave as it waved of old. Around it let us gather, first Christ's, then our country's, end quote. 
oh that the sentiments of the following beautiful lines were the sentiments of every heart in the united states o lord of hosts almighty king behold the sacrifice we bring to every arm thy strength impart thy spirit shed through every heart wake in our breasts the living fires the holy faith that warmed our sires thy hand hath made our nation free to die for her is serving thee be thou a pillared flame to show the midnight snare the silent foe and when the battle thunders loud still guide us in its moving cloud god of all nations sovereign lord in thy dread name we draw the sword we lift the starry flag on high that fills with light our stormy sky no more its flaming emblems wave to bar from hope the trembling slave no more its radiant glories shine to blast with woe one child of thine from treason's rent from murderer's stain guard thou its folds till peace shall reign till fort and field till shore and sea join our loud anthem praise to thee i cannot better describe the state of affairs after the battle of fair oaks than by giving the following dispatch from mcclellan dated june seventh in reply to your dispatch of two p m to-day i have the honor to state that the chickahominy river has risen so as to flood the entire bottoms to the depth of three or four feet i am pushing forward the bridges in spite of this and the men are working night and day up to their waists in water to complete them the whole face of the country is a perfect bog entirely impassable for artillery or even cavalry except directly in the narrow roads which renders any general movement either of this or the rebel army entirely out of the question until we have more favorable weather i am glad to learn that you are pressing forward reinforcements so vigorously i shall be in perfect readiness to move forward and take richmond the moment mccall reaches here and the ground will admit the passage of artillery i have advanced my pickets about a mile to-day driving off the rebel pickets and securing a very advantageous position the rebels have several batteries established commanding the debouches from two of our bridges and fire upon our working parties continually but as yet they have killed but few of our men again june seventh he says quote, i am completely checked by the weather the roads and fields are literally impassable for artillery almost so for infantry the chickahominy is in a dreadful state we have another rainstorm on our hands i wish to be distinctly understood that whenever the weather permits i will attack with whatever force i may have although a larger force would enable me to gain much more decisive results i would be glad to have mccall's infantry sent forward by water at once without waiting for his artillery and cavalry the next day the secretary of war replied quote, your dispatch of three thirty p m yesterday has been received i am fully impressed with the difficulties mentioned and which no art or skill can avoid but only endure be assured general that there never has been a moment when my desire has been otherwise than to aid you with my whole heart mind and strength since the hour we first met and whatever others may say for their own purposes you never have had and never can have any one more truly your friend or more anxious to support you 
or more joyful than i shall be at the success which i have no doubt will soon be achieved by your arms the above dispatch has the appearance of the genuine article but i am inclined to think it is a clever counterfeit while mcclellan's requests were cheerfully complied with as far as promises were concerned little was done to strengthen his weakened forces in view of the coming struggle with an overwhelming force in front and the flooded chickahominy in the rear by unreliable promises he was filled with delusive hopes and led on to more certain destruction to disaster and failure at least End of chapter 14